If you recall, in February of this year, Secretary of State Al Gore, uh, in a February lecture, I've forgotten now which country was in the South Pacific or in Southeast Asia, called climate change a weapon of mass destruction, a killer, a weapon, something that destroys humans, destroys life. Is that the story of climate change? Is that what we're supposed to believe? Is that, is that the story we're supposed to march forward with? Well, let's look at what the media has put out. Uh, after Kitty Boone asked me to do this talk back in December, I started trying to, I cut out a matrix, and every time different topics related to the climate change would come up on the news, I was starting little, you know, little, little cross-hatches for how many times a certain topic came up, and it, and it got to be ridiculous. There was, it came up so often, I stopped the cross-hatches. Here's the list of the ways in which climate change plays out through the media. Well, we're given killer floods, killer storms, killer tornadoes, killer wildfires, killer droughts, killer infestations of pests, and not necessarily human killing, but certainly crop killing, tree killing, uh, killer water wars that are actually starting uh, to show up, especially in arid areas. Uh, famine that's going to be endemic, increased ethnic wars, and that's a, based on a UC Berkeley study that, that came out, plagues and mass illness, again, sponsored by uh, the, the Alaska Department of Public Health, mass de massive deforestations. This is a real interesting study. came out in two, uh, I don't know if, it, if you noticed it, a group of people at, at Harvard took a small field, surrounded it with, with sprayers, and sprayed in carbon dioxide to keep at ground level and at crop level the carbon dioxide level at 550 parts per million, that's that magic tipping point that everyone said is catastrophic. And what they found is that while increased carbon dioxide, this is also found out in an Australian study, seems to increase biomass production, it significantly reduced nutrients, and they were looking particularly at iron and zinc. So what it means is to get the same nutrients, you now have to eat 30 or 40% more, and we'll all become obese. Mass extinctions, economic mega losses, dead oceans, destruction of coastal cities. The question is, is that what climate change means? That list is what comes out of, uh, about climate change on the news. That's Armageddon. It's the that is Old Testament wrath of God of biblical proportions. Is that the story we're supposed to get? If it is, Sum it up, that's climate change. And they wonder why more people aren't getting excited about taking action against it when, woe be unto us, we're doomed. The story we're getting, I think, I just thought of this uh, last night. I was in a conversation. It reminds me very much of this situation. You're sitting on a train track. Let's put it on a trestle, somewhere where you can't get off the train track. And your cell phone rings, and it's the engineer of a train who's roaring down on you who says, excuse me, but you're on the track, and I can't break in time to miss you. You're going to be splattered. And you say, well, should I run? And they say, well, that'll help. Uh, you'll get farther down the track, and you'll live longer, but I'll still hit you, and I'm still going to kill you. But you'll live longer. And you have a choice. Do I exert myself and run down the track to live longer, hoping that something good happens, or do I say, I'm going to die anyway and sit right here on the track and have a wonderful picnic until I'm splattered? That's the story we're getting the, through, the, through the mass media on climate change. It's the wrong story. All the people who are giving us this story, well, let me go on just a little, one, one more slide. So I'm a storyteller, right? So we've got to translate this a little bit out of story, out of science terms into story terms. So the question is, is climate change the big bad wolf? But in this version of the story of the big bad, big bad wolf, there is no brick house. The story goes, the wolf arrives, destroys houses, eats people. Goes to the next house, destroys the house, eats people, the end. That's a pretty depressing story. If that's the story, what's the point? It's the wrong story. So the question is, is the story total gloom and doom destruction. Is that the story? Well, if it is, then, oh, uh, I'm going too fast. Or the other option is, eh, 
some people are saying, are we just a little bit like Chicken Little? Running around saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, when in fact it's not quite that catastrophic. We're overreacting. Well, which is it? Lacking a compelling, articulate story of climate change, you get to make your pick and go toward either pole, but either way, it's getting us nowhere. Okay, so if it is really all gloom and doom, if that's the story, then as, and let me get his name right, because he's a, a, a Bay Area writer. Um, oh, yeah, Bruce Hagen wrote, this is in April, in an editorial, denial is a reasonable alternative to despair. If the story is despair, denial makes sense. Do you see what that says? The people who, with good intentions, are putting out stories about how awful climate change is going to be, how it is destructive in an effort to make us get up and do something, actually are producing, for many people, the exact opposite effect. It's a counterproductive story. It's producing apathy and despair. The only way out of that is denial. It's the wrong story. Or as Charles Krothheimer, um, a guy that... Uh, so. He, as he wrote in, as part of his series on um, exploding what he calls the myth of settled uh, climate science and, and, and goes after the fact if there's anything at all that's at doubt, then everything is at doubt. It's a great way to deny. It's a great strategy for denial. But his is hope, even false hope, is a rational alternative to denial. We need a better story. We haven't gotten a story that makes sense yet. Stories are supposed to provide direction, uh, future visions, reasonable pathways toward those visions. Effective stories reframe an issue to avoid the kind of conflicting deadlock that we have. They provide new perspective. They create empathy and understanding. We haven't gotten it. So I was thinking some about why not. Uh, but for those of you who don't know me, and there's no reason why any of you, except for a couple of people that I know here real well, there's no reason why you should. Um, for those of you who are wondering who in the world is he and why is he standing up there, I have been for 34 years a full-time touring storyteller. But before that, my doctorate's in oceanography. I was working at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, one of the national research labs up Hill from UC Berkeley, leading a small environmental research team looking at the, uh, the environmental implications and effects of advanced oceanic energy technology for the Department of Energy. During that six-year period when I was there, I met a woman that was going to become my wife. She had a sister who was a single mom, had a boy who was four, and so to win brownie points with the person I was trying to woo, I, I took her nephew periodically to the park affect babysitting. And we'd run around for a while and I'd get tired and in order to get him to sit down with me I found I'd have to say I'll, I'll make up a story. Now remember my background is engineering and science. I didn't even know there was a part of the university library at Oregon State where I went to grad school that had stories in it. I never got out of the science stacks. But for child management purposes I'd flop in the sandbox make up stories and every time I did Literally, it's back in the early 80s before there were cell phones, so people assumed I wasn't talking on the cell phone to someone else. When I started making up a story, we would draw crowds. I'm making up a story to keep one four-year-old kid quiet, and we would draw crowds. I'd look up sometimes, and there'd be 70, 80, 100 people standing around listening. There was no guarantee the story was going anywhere. Most of them came in in the middle, so even if it had been going somewhere, they wouldn't get it. It didn't matter. You could see physically their person change as soon as they suddenly perceived it was a story. Now I can go in an EEG lab, and I do some of that research, and you can watch the parts of the brain light up. And as soon we've done some experiments when we give people things to read, and as soon as they perceive that it's a story, you can watch the parts of their brain that light up that activate change. We listen to story-based material differently than we listen to anything else. We pay attention to stories differently than we pay attention to anything else. Same information coming in some other form. 
So one day I had one of those epiphanies where I was sitting in the sandbox making a story for him and it suddenly occurred to me that if I sat in that sandbox and read any of the reports that I thought I was paid really good money by the Department of, uh, of Energy to create, none of these people would stick around to listen. They were only there because they got that it was a story. And so I fell in awe of story and dropped out of science to become a full-time storyteller. It's 36 at the time my family thought I was having a midlife crisis. I had two uncles that threatened to drag me away to a mountain cabin for one of those tough love sessions, you know, where they tie you to a chair and won't let you eat or drink and slap you around until you regain some sense and go beg for your job back. They continued, they didn't actually do that, they threatened to, but they continued to think it until I wrote my first book. And then they said, oh, you're an author. <laughs> oh, you should have said so. That's better. We don't pay much attention. We don't give credit to storytelling in this country, and yet, the process of telling stories is frightfully powerful. And I use the word frightfully correctly. It is, it is a scary amount of power to wield when you tell stories, if they're effective stories. So, dropped out. When I became a storyteller, it turned out that at that time, or at 81 at that point, I was the only working storyteller in this country with an advanced degree in science. And so everyone else, when we'd meet for those national conferences of storytellers, everyone else pointed at me and said, you, you do the research. You, you figure out why, why we're so important. You figure out why people listen to stories so well. And so for the last 30 plus years, I've led the research effort into why is it that we pay such attention to stories? And, and, and so that's where I want to I, I then go through that learning that science, and let's see how it helps us unravel the role of story in the topic of climate change and, and make sense out of what that story would have to look like. And a good place to start is with those two terms, story and data. Um, to this point, scientists have been trying to tell the story of climate change with data, with reports, with information. And in the last 15 years, I haven't actually verified this, but I've seen it written three times by different writers, uh, probably two of whom copied the other one, but nonetheless by three different writers, so I can claim I have three sources, that there have been over 2,000 reports done by universities, nonprofits, uh, some corporations, and government agencies from municipality up to UN and, and international groups all of which have said, yes, climate change is, and the rate of climate change seems to be faster than historically we have, we, we have been able to detect that it happened in the, in the distant past, uh, and that if we don't do something about it, it's going to be a catastrophic train wreck, and, and, it, and it's going to be really ugly. In the last 10 years, this is from an article that came out in Discover Magazine in late 2013. In the last 10 years, that barrage, that avalanche of information to the point where for a long time there were reports coming out every week of this, have dropped the number, the percentage of Americans who in sur when surveyed think that climate change is a hoax have dropped it from just under 39% to 37%. Data just doesn't do it. We need the story to add perspective and understanding to the data. Okay, what does the story do? It gives purpose, it, it gives explanation, it creates context for the information so that we can create meaning from it and so that we can understand it. That's the role of story. Yes, you need the data. The data provides all the specificity, the, the details that go into the story, the, the direction, the goals of the story, but it's not on its own effective without the story to frame it and give it purpose. And that's what we haven't gotten yet. So let's, I was thinking about this. The question was, why haven't we gotten a good story? They get good stories all the time on all sorts of topics. What's so hard, uniquely hard about climate change? I found five unique problems that, that make this story difficult to come up with. First, definitions. Climate. I started asking people, not necessarily those who are scientists, but just people that I know, people that I'd bump into, people who, at workshops where I'm in corporations doing consulting work on story. And I just try to work in the question, what, uh, what, tell me what's your climate? You know the most common answer I got back? Temperate, as opposed to Arctic or, or tropical. 
well, if that's what you think climate is, what is climate change? It's a meaningless term. The next most common answer, answer I got were those who described the biome in which they live. Well, I live in a desert climate or, or, or a sagebrush climate. Now, it's true, there's a, there's a good correlation between the, 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 the flora in an environment and the climate, but the flora isn't the climate. Okay? And next, after that, came those who would describe their climate as, well, wet or, or, or too humid or start to do specific characteristics, and, and then they weren't sure. Are those, are those legitimate climate terms? Uh, I had a couple guys in L.A. who answered, when I said, what's your climate? They said, smoggy. And having been raised in L.A., I, I suddenly thought, you're right. That is exactly the climate of L.A., smoggy. Well, if we aren't articulate about what our climate is, how can we possibly relate to a change in that thing, whatever it is? So what do we do? As surrogates, we use weather catastrophes and say climate change equals weather catastrophe because we can get a handle on those. But that's not correct. Second problem. We've spent a century very consciously divorcing ourselves from climate. We put in electric lights everywhere so we don't care how long the days are, whether they're getting longer or shorter. We have heat, central heating and air conditioning everywhere so that we don't care if it's hot outside or cold outside. And we go from a heated air-conditioned house to a heated air-conditioned car that's in our enclosed heated air-conditioned garage and then drive to an underground parking garage that's heated and air-conditioned in an office building that is heated and air-conditioned and has windows that won't open. And if we want to get away from the office, we can go through enclosed, uh, enclosed walkways over to the heated air-conditioned enclosed mall. You can live your whole life in many cities and never go outside. Well, if we've spent a century divorcing ourselves from climate, why should we turn around now and, and worry about it? If you had gone through a prolonged, ugly divorce and then found out that your ex was, was exhibiting some behavior that was, self, that was potentially bad for him or her, how many people would care and how many would people say, good, let them burn? Well, we've spent a lot of time divorcing ourselves from climate, and so it takes a lot to get us to think that it's worthwhile. Third, scale. Spatially, climate change doesn't. Climate change is a global phenomenon. It's the interaction of all of the, these various oceanic, atmospheric, uh, land-based systems that produces climate change. If the climate, the temperature, if warms three degrees where you are, most places in this country over the course of a year, temperature will go up and down 100 degrees. If it jumps up three degrees. Average, so what? If, you know, if instead of 100, if it's 103, it's still hot. In the winter, instead of being minus 3, if it's 0, well, maybe that's a little bit better. It's hard to relate that specific thing we call global warming to some catastrophe unless you understand how that small t change in temperature amplifies itself through this interwoven network of global systems. That's a very difficult story to tell because stories are about specifics. Next, temporal. You look at the, the effects of climate change, and they don't accrue quickly. I, um, I, I, I had a friend. He's uh, not the brightest of my friends, uh, but, but he's a good guy. And he's read a, heard a report on, I don't know which, channel, which TV channel it was, that I think it was, it was about the... It, it started with an, uh, a piece on the West Antarctic ice shelf and said that oceans were going to rise. Ocean, oceans were going to rise. And he said to me, I've got four weeks before I start my vacation. We're going to Florida. I hope the ocean rise waits till after I'm finished with my vacation. Ocean rises in the rate of millimeters per year those timescales don't make sense. If you're speaking of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, have you you've seen the articles, there are a couple of them that came out earlier this spring that said we've, we've passed the tipping point, it is going to melt, and we can't stop it. And it hit the news, and everyone said, oh, ocean will go up three, four feet. This is terrible, it's a catastrophe. And you had to get to the lawyerese-like fine print at the end of the article to find the line that says, 
it will happen in three to five hundred years. I've told that to several people who are even science aware but not necessarily real science savvy. And they said, you know, West Antarctic Ice Sheet is going gonna, is gonna to melt. And they all say, oh, climate change, it's awful. We've got to do something about it. And I say, yeah, and it's going to happen in three to 500 years. And first they think it's a joke that I'm c- pulling their leg. And when I re- they realize I'm serious, every time I have mentioned it to someone, they get angry. Do you know who they get angry at? Science. And the scientist who created this incredible false catastrophe. Something that's that far out has virtually no present value, so we think it's a, so they, they got angry that, as if we were pulling their leg. Temporal timescale. If you live in a world where you know, the long-range planning is what you do for the next quarterly corporate report, 80 to 300 year time frame is very difficult to pull off and make meaningful. Next, discount rate. It goes along actually with the t- temporal scale. Yeah, this is actually an economic term. You, you would rather probably get, if I said I'll give you a dollar today or a dollar in a year, which one would you pick? Well, you'd pick the dollar today, right? If for no other reason that you could put it in the bank and at current interest rates have a dollar and two cents at the end of the year. In the same way, if I said I'm going to punch you in the arm really hard today, or if you'd rather, we'll wait five years and I'll punch you in the arm three times. Well, you'd much rather wait because there's always a chance that I'll forget that we won't bump into each other in five years. I might die before five years are up, right? Or you might go to the gym and buff up a lot so you can fight me off if I try to hit you in the arm in five years. It's because future events get discounted when we try to think of what they're worth to us today. Future benefits get discounted. Future costs get discounted, especially um, present costs, and that's what we're being asked to pay because of global warming, reduce your carbon footprint, change your lifestyle, uh, simplify your life. That's, that's a cost. And we're comparing it to a future benefit that hasn't even been defined because the story we're getting now is that even if we do everything we can, climate change is still a, a, a train wreck that's going to pass 550 parts per million in the atmosphere and, and all sorts of terrible things are going to happen no matter what we do. So it's like a, a, a carrot and a stick thing. We, we've got a very definite stick here, but this is a, a, a rotten piece of fruit or a piece of a vegetable that's on, the, that's on the benefit discount rate. Next, we keep focusing on science and on the data, looking for the story. That's not where the story is. Okay. Those are the problems. So in order to get a story that's going to work, we've got to get around those problems to get something that takes this, that is almost by definition, theoretical and abstract and makes it a gut level issue, makes it personal so that you feel it in your own personal way. That is to say, it has to become emotional. Um, that's what we're trying to do. That's what a story is supposed to do. Now, let's, a little story, back up for just a little bit. And do, let me do a little story science that we can then see what makes a story work so we can talk about what this story has to look like. If you're going to tell a story, especially this kind, your job is to influence people. Influence, change, beliefs, attitudes, values, behavior. It's what you want to do. Here's what the research has shown. If you want to do that, you have to hold their attention. If they're not paying attention, go into any classroom in this country, sit in the back of the room, and count how many times in the course of a day a teacher says, class, pay attention. Class, pay attention. He or she is asking them to literally pay with a valuable commodity their attention with no real guarantee they're going to get anything back for it. Um, so you need attention, and we've been able to show in, in, in labs and other experiments that the only way to ho- have, people, have people's attention is to engage them, and that engagement can be defined as emotionally laden attention. You have to invoke an emotion, the, the, the audience at an emotional level if you ha- want any chance of fully engaging them. That's where story structure comes in, because that, pro, that, those elements that we call effect, the elements of effective story structure automatically are geared to invoking an emotional response. It's, once you get an emotional response, you can engage, hold attention, and have a chance to influence. Okay. How do you do that? Well, in your head, information comes in, in through your sensory organs. Let's say eyes, ears. It does not go straight to your conscious mind. 
First, it goes into the lower back part of your brain, subconscious part of your brain, for a, a, a bunch of processing. Some of it is just straight decoding work and retranslating into the language that your brain uses to talk to itself. But what gets to your conscious mind, frontal lobes, is highly processed information. One of the processes that it goes through is lights up these areas in the lower back part of your brain, which are the exact areas that you use to create the elements of effective story structure. Because for 150,000 years, we humans have chosen, for whatever reason, to rely on story to convey all essential histories, factual information, attitudes, beliefs, values, and have archived all that information in human memory, there was no writing, in story form, because we have done it that way, research has shown, um, some evolutionary biologists first put this theory out, and since it's been pretty well tested, that our brains have been evolutionarily re rewired so that you were born hardwired to make sense of the world in story terms, and developmental psychologists can pick it up in kids as, as young as six weeks old, that you respond to those elements. This neural story net is that set of, of little subregions that processes incoming information into story form, makes sense out of it in story form. Right? It lies between your sensory organs and your conscious mind. So you turn it into story form before it reaches your conscious mind. We are really homo narratus, story animals. Everything that reaches your, con your conscious mind from the outside comes into it actually in story form, a self-created story form. You adjust those elements. We're going to show, I'll show you what those elements are in a minute. Um, one more step. Make sense mandate. We've been able to show, not, this, isn't, this part isn't so much me, but it's a very small part of me, mostly it's a whole bunch of other people, been able to show that, developmental psychologists mostly, if your brain, your brain's always looking for an excuse to ignore things, and if it can't make sense out of it, you give yourself permission to ignore it. You do it all the time. That makes sense mandate, make sense or ignore it, for incoming information, for whatever reason, has been given to your neural story net so that you make sense of incoming information in story terms. I don't care if when you're writing or, or talking, if you think you're using story terms and telling a story, the people listening to you use story terms and story structures to make sense out of what you say, whether you do or not. It is the way your target audience's mind is wired to work. So, how do we do that? This is a very short, partial list of the ways that we routinely change information around to make it make sense. If this were a whole storytelling workshop, yeah, I, we'd do a couple of games where I'd show you how readily you do this. One, uh, let me do one real quick demo as a, as a group. If I said to you, person number one says, where's John? And person number two said, well, I didn't want to say anything. But I saw a green VW parked in front of Carol's. Okay, person number one, where's John? Person number two, I didn't want to say anything, but I saw a green VW parked in front of Carol's. Instantly, you're in your mind trying to make sense out of it. You start to make assumptions. Well, John must drive a green VW. These two people, person number one and person number two, are probably in the same room. Doesn't say that, but it doesn't make sense if you don't assume it. You also took that line, first line from person number two. Well, I didn't want to say anything, but. And in your mind, to make it make sense to you, completely reversed the meaning of a factual statement you were given. You do it all the time. People do it with scientific data all the time. If it helps them make it make sense to them, they will completely reverse your conclusion statements. This is a very dangerous but it is an automatic process that you can't ignore if you want to try to be the one to communicate. Summary. Neural story net lies between the outside world and your conscious mind. It does distort incoming information to make it make sense. Right? So the story that they get in their conscious mind isn't, what, isn't the story you said. That's one of the problems. And by the way, if you want, um, I just saw you doing the, the picture thing. If anyone wants, I will send them this PowerPoint file. So you don't have to, you know, blow your megapixels. Um, 
If you want it, I'll, I'll send you the PowerPoint file. What they see in here isn't what you said. That's the problem with the stories we've gotten so far, is they are so vague, they leave so much to the inter individual interpretation that the stories that people hear aren't at all the stories that people thought they were saying. And so we have discourse, we have conflict where everyone thought we were going to have um, cheering unity. Okay? Here's the bottom line of it. Applying effective story structure has been shown to minimize the distortion that that neural story net performs on your information so that what reaches the conscious mind of an audience member is closest to what you intended. That's why it's worth knowing about story structure. So uh, that's what effective story structure is. It's that structure that gives that neural story net what it needs to make sense out of your information your way. There have been a number of studies that have come out that come to the same conclusion all the time. We interpret new information to support our existing stories. When you get new information, it doesn't tend to change your belief systems. You tend to change the information to support your existing belief systems. Let me add on to that one. Uh, this is a fun one. The Betty Crocker effect. Uh, a TV New York food show was going to do a test for the best brownie recipe ever. And they did all of their science tests. It was uh, the American Test Kitchen was the show. You know, for granularity and moisture content and density of the chocolate and uh, whether the sugar granules had, had done whatever they're supposed to do and, and what had emulsified and what hadn't. And they, so they ripped it apart chemically and got down to two finalists. And then, of course, at the end of all that, they tasted and said, hmm, tastes good. They got down to two finalists and decided to go out on the streets of New York to have the final test off. Plates of each, citizens to come up, taste them, and vote for what they thought was the best. And I don't know why, but they added in a third brownie. They went to the grocery store, got Betty Crocker brownie mix, mixed it up according to the package, had three plates out there, went on the street for two days, and on average, 73.5% of the people preferred the Betty Crocker. These guys were floored. So they went through the list of all of the attributes that they had calculated, chocolate density, uh, moisture content, the, the, the grain structure, the, 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 way, the way that it crumbed, all of those. And when they did an individual attribute of the brownie that way, Betty Crocker never won. When they said to people, then why did you pick Betty Crocker? They said, because it, it reminded me most of what I had as a kid. It fit with their version their storied version of a good brownie. And so rather than change their definition of a good brownie to go along with new data, they ignored the new data and went with their story. We do that. We do that. Um, we interpret facts to mean exactly what our story tells us they're supposed to mean. So at that point, you start to come to a conclusion, information alone isn't going to cut it. The only thing that changes a deeply held belief-based story is a better story. And for climate change, we haven't gotten it. And we need it. Okay, so two minutes on what is a story. I'm not gonna go into, into all of it, but I wanna go through a couple of characteristics of what makes a story an effective influencing story, because that's the kind we're looking for here. First, think of your stories as mind movies. That's what they are, they're mind movies. And think of what you have to put in a story so that the person listening to you or reading what you wrote is so inspired that they're willing to take their time and their energy in their head to develop and produce this vivid, intense, wonderful movie that they will then fire away, file away in memory and remember forever, which is what happens with effective stories. Well... Some of the things that we have to know is stories are about individual characters. They're not about groups. They're not about concepts. Climate change is not a character. It's not what the story is about. Climate isn't what the story is about. Stories are about individuals. We need an individual through whose eyes we can see the story. We need to see struggles. We want to watch characters struggle. The more they struggle, the more we empathize with them. The more we want to support them. The more we get excited by them. And they have to be struggling to reach something that we consider is an important goal. Important doesn't come from the goal itself. It comes from their motives, why they want the goal. Um, third, 
It's all about specifics. That's what makes those, the, the, those spatial and temporal stretches of global climate change so difficult to work with. Effective stories are about, the more specific it is, the more powerful the story is. Fourth, we know where the story's gonna end, when the main character's goal is resolved. The trouble, one of the troubles with the stories we've gotten so far is there is no goal. There is just change your lifestyle, do what's right, and we're gonna hope for the best. There is no future vision, no goal out there that we're all striving to get to. Fifth, there gotta be conflicts and problems. Climate change, luckily we got plenty. Uh, but there have to be things that block a character from reaching a goal. Sixth, the story has to be written so that it makes it personal. It invokes that emotional response. Now the picture version of those eight elements, and there are eight of them, I'll go through them in a second. A character that we think is of interest to us has a goal that's important to them, goal plus a motive, but they're blocked by some combination of problems and conflicts that engender some sort of risk and danger, risk the likelihood something's gonna go wrong, danger what happens when something goes wrong. Character then must struggle to get over, around, through problems and conflicts, facing risk and danger to get to the goal. All told in sufficient detail so that we can vividly see it in our minds. Those are the elements that neural story net is looking for. I want you to just to take a moment to appreciate the dragon. <laughs> Only took me a weekend to do the dragon. <laughs> Didn't leave me a lot of time to do the character down here. Okay, I, I ran out of time for him. But the dragon, or admittedly it was a three day weekend. But still, it was a weekend. <laughs> And the dragon, I think, looks pretty good. Went to the publisher on one of my books and said, this goes in the, in the book, and he said, thank you for sharing. Never made it in the book. Uh, here's the list of them. The characters that, that occupy the key character position in the story, character traits that make them interesting, goal, motive, conflicts and problems, risk and danger. Then, and only then, do we care about what happens in a story, the struggles. Struggles don't make any sense to us if we don't understand those first six, and then the deta sensory details that make it real. That is a story. Those are the elements and we're lacking them totally in the stories we're getting around climate change. Uh, if I was gonna do a definition, for those of you who wanna get the PowerPoint file, you can read this. I was challenged to write a one sentence definition of what a story is, even though I couldn't, but I can do it in three sentences. Uh, that was good enough, a long paragraph. But it's just that, taking a character that the audience can relate to and identify with, that they're interested in, that is done by the traits, has a, has a goal, uh, that's vitally important to them and relevant to the audience. You do that with a motive, but they're blocked with problems and conflicts that create risk and danger to make it exciting, and then the character has to struggle to overcome them, and we, we end when the goal is resolved, and then we need the details. Same thing as I just said. But it, it's, if you want to be able to say it in a paragraph there, that's what an effective story is. <coughs> I want to add one more thought in on story influence, because that's what we're trying to do. And I've just, a lot of the research I've been doing lately has been on what are the elements of story that produce, that control how a story either does or doesn't exert influence. Uh, a picture diagram, I made it as simple as I can. My wife rolls her up her eyes and screams every time she sees any kind of a flow diagram. So since she edits some of the books, I have to make them real simple for her. Remember two, uh, two, uh, three slides ago, I said characters in the key character positions? There are really about seven of them that you expect to find in a story, those role models, those role positions. You automatically in your brain try to fit the characters that you're presented in the story into those roles. Three of them have a lot to do with influence. The main character, so the one the story's about, has a goal, something they're after. It's backed up and made important to them because of the motives that explain why they want the goal and it is those motives that make us identify with that character. Okay? There is an antagonist, the embodiment of the biggest single force blocking the character from reaching the goal. At the climax of the story, those two confront each other for the last time in the story. At that moment, at that moment, there's always some character that determines how the climax comes out. It might be the main character. It might be the antagonist. But often it's another character. Classic westerns, the cavalry rides in at the last moment to save the day. They come in as the climax character and decide how that final battle with all, all them nasty engines, which <laughs> we were really mean to the Native Americans uh, in our movies back in the 
especially it seems like back then. Um, Cavalry rode in at the very last second. They could have come in two days ago and solved the whole thing before there was any bloodshed, but they don't. They want to be dramatic. They wait until the, until the last minute, come in at the climax. That scene then determines whether the character actually gets to their goal or not, which defines the resolution of the story, which is a combination of do they get to the goal or not, how do they feel about it. The, the power that that story has over an audience is determined by that bit of information combined with who that is and how we relate to them. And that determines the emotion that we walk away from the story with. And it is that emotion that we walk away from the story with that determines whether we will change our beliefs, our attitudes, our values, and especially whether we will act. And those are all very controllable, manipulable elements of a story. You can design a story to have whatever impact you want it to have if you look at, at the right elements and understand how they're going to influence an audience. Okay, so let's go to, let's go to the... Uh, how are we doing on time? I want to make sure we leave a little time for questions. Good. We are, we're okay. This is real simple. We've already really covered it. So this is sort of like a, a little summary. First, if it's going to be a climate change story, it has to be an effective story or it won't engage. It won't hold attention. So all that bit about what makes a story an effective story, it applies. More specifically, however, one, the story is not about science. It's not about climate. It's, but it is about change, human change. That's what the story of climate change is about. It's not about the climate. Climate is an external driver to the story. It's about do we change or don't we? Do we resist or don't we? Do we adapt or don't we? How do we resist? It's about change in humans. So it's all about the humans. It's not about the climate. Second, it really sh it needs to deal with adaptation. And, and here I would include mitigation as one strategy for adaptation, not about whether or not the climate is changing, how, how fast, but what are you going to do about it? Right? So now we're taking it, it's about the humans, and they change, and what are they going to do? That's the story. What we then need is for a main character that we're going to identify with, so we have that identity character I was talking about, has to have a noble future vision. That's their goal. What is it we're going for? Why are we going to put out any effort? What is the future going to look like? You, Pardon? Well, th then that's an, that is an image of the future, except based on the time scale. He said a child. Based on the time scale of global warming, it's your great-grandchildren that we're really talking about. Native Americans do get along, many of the Native American cultures get along real nicely because in order to make a decision, one of their criteria is what is the effect of it seven generations down. If we all did that, it would be a much different discussion about climate change. So it's finding something that is far enough in the future so that it is the goal where we want to get. It's the driver. But that image is a good one. A child. A child. My child. I want my child not to grow up and be miserable when he's 50 and hate me for having ruined his planet. I want to, I want to and kick over my gravestone. I want him to still think I was an okay guy. But a noble future vision, something we can relate to that is a driver for us to want to get there, wherever there is. Next, we need motives for why the character wants to get there. Why do you want a child? And the motives have to relate to common core values for the target audience you're going after. You've got to swing them. You've got to make your character resonate for the same reasons that that audience, that target audience resonates. Is it for th communities that thrive? Is it for the right to pursue individual liberty and happiness? Is it, whatever it is, the motives that drive your main character toward that future vision have to match the, what you think are the core values of your target audience, period, or they won't, they'll back out of the story. Next, now is where the climate science and data begin to enter. Because the conflicts and problems are going to represent the choices. That's, that's the problem. We're struggling to make choices. What do we choose? Well, a choice only makes sense within the, within the context of, of some kind of a goal. Establish the goal. Then we're looking at what are the choices? What are the choices? And once we get those, and those relate to the choices, the policy decisions that, 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 that have to get made, do we do something? Don't we do something? Now we have criteria for evaluating those choices. 
and we want our characters to struggle. They gotta struggle over those. It can't be an easy decision. They gotta grapple with it. This is where you get to bring in all the science information. This is where suddenly that, that great mass of data have relevance to the story. Does it support one choice or the other? How, do, how much do you weigh this? How much do you discount that? And then when we get to the resolution, whatever the character decides, whatever the character does for the goal, do they, get, do they take it or not? Do they abandon it or don't they? We need to see the consequences of those choices. Classic storytelling stuff. That's the way, we, that's the way for 100,000 years tribal cultures have taught values and, and life skills. Looking at stories, watching characters struggle to make decisions, and then looking at the consequences of those choices so that we can then take that story example back into our own lives and, and, and make it make sense for us. So it is critical that we get this. We have, we have to know what the consequences are of those decisions. Next, this story has to inspire. We have, it can't be, it, the ultimate version of this story can't lead to, and they all died. <laughs> or what's the point? There has to be some element in it that leads to collective success. You've got to find a way to define collective success. I think more importantly, it's lay out pathways so that they, we can thrive. If, on the way towards some goal, a future vision, we get a sense of what are the pathways that let us thrive, we'll buy into it. We're willing then to put out some effort. We have a reason to act other than just because we're going to delay catastrophe. That's it. Those are, those are the earmarks of a powerful, influential, effective climate change story. And unfortunately, we haven't gotten one yet. Uh, so let me stop there, open up for any questions. I will say this for the questions, because we're audio recording all of these sessions, if you would, wait for the microphone uh, and, and do your questions. We have one here, and then we'll come up here. Yeah. Hi. Um, thank you. I, I do, I've been doing work. I'm an artist activist and do work with storytelling in different groups, and in particular environmental justice communities, and have been doing work with I Don't Know More and the Cowboy Indian Alliance, which is located mm -hmm. in Nebraska, doing work around the reservoir and preserving the reservoir. Um, they tell a very interesting and compelling story around climate change. 350.org is also telling compelling stories. And so there, I'm wondering about what your analysis there, is on those stories. The, the, the stories on reservoir, the Native American stories you refer to, I don't know. Um, the other, yeah, there are, some, there are plenty of, there are a number of groups who are beginning to create some effective stories. They're still cloistered in very tightly um, niched marketplaces. They're, they're not getting out, generally speaking, yet. Um, we'd have to talk, we'd have to actually to do... To do that analysis, we'd have to pull an actual story up on the, on the table which, and, and then go through it and see what's there and what's not there and what's implied and what's not implied and, and how is it implied or how isn't it implied and, and what, is, what is set up as the, the, the emotion, that residual uh, resolution emotion that I mentioned with which we're driven away from the story, what we carry away from it and, and how that matches with our goal. So um, we, we, I, I haven't done that analysis in that kind of a specific analysis with their stories. It's thrilling to see that there are little pockets of those of, of better stories starting to come out, but they're still in, in niche communities, very tightly controlled niche communities, and, they, and they're not really getting out to where the masses of, of people have access to them. Um, here and then, then over there, if we could. Mary Wallace from mm -hmm. Texas. Uh, for the last few years, I've had the opportunity to attend the uh, Environmental Film Festival in Washington, D.C., mm. www.dcenvironmentalfilmfest.org. And over the course of three weeks in March, every March for the last 22 years, they show about 200 films. And I will say, with very few exceptions, I've been moved by yeah. most of the films I've seen. And just to use one as an example, Good. there's a movie called Mission Blue about the life and work of oceanographer Sylvia Earle. Sure. And it was shown at the Smithsonian. She is in her late years of work with National Geographic, yep. et cetera. She received a standing ovation. It was very, very moving. So I would simply say that this is 
and a lot of these films are available free, uh, streaming online. Mm-hmm. And anyway, it's a, it's I think and, movies. And I and I agree that um, they they can be very effective because they're they are movies. Uh, so for those who are reluctant to create their own mind movies, we're very good at recording vi- video information coming from the outside. We don't tend to personalize it, so it often isn't quite as powerful as a story that you would listen to and, and personalize as you go along. Uh, what, we, what, what there need to be is, is more mass marketing of those kinds of things so that on the nightly news... By the way, I did a little testing for, for this. I started watching... Uh, I live north of San Francisco, so the three main networks in San Francisco started going with, I'd pick one of their hour-long evening newses and recorded it and went through and, and clocked how much time went to weather disaster stories over the course the month of May and how much went to sports. And on all three, weather disasters got more time than sports. Also, over, the, over that same period, and actually I extended it an extra week, uh, I took Diane Sawyer, you know, and, and her evening news, half-hour show, and I counted how many times over that six, uh, five-and-a-half-week period, tornadoes. There were stories on tornadoes. And there were lots of them. There was a stretch of about 12 days where there was one every day. At the end of that, I got to one of the producers in the show and asked her to go back, if she could, over the same time period the year before, and she said, well, I, that'd be too difficult. I can't do that unless you're not going to hire me to do it, which I wasn't going to do. Uh, but she went back and did some, some estimating on it, some, some rough work on it. There were roughly eight times as many tornado stories this year as last year. And this year, according to the scientists, has been a fairly mild tornado season. All of a sudden, these weather disasters have become huge news. But what hasn't, what I'd love her to be talking about, is not the catastrophic version of climate change, but the kind of stuff you're talking about. This was an extremely positive movie. And yeah. if you talk to her personally, you know, Yeah, quietly, and I, I have seen that one, a, and I have interviewed her. So uh, that's which why I've, I've seen that, that particular anyway. one. And you're right, it's a, it's a great movie. Um, but w- what we need is for those stories to become the dominant stories that we hear, not the wild exception. That's what we really need. And microphone to the other side of the room. Thank you. Make poor Mike girls run. Thank you for that. I was taking notes. Um, Brian Enquist, University of Arizona and the mm, Santa Fe mm-hmm. Institute. So I'm biologist and evolutionary biologist. So Very cool. um, yeah, th- th- this is fantastic. Uh, I-, I guess my main question here is we've been through other environmental problems and, and other issues um, that um, we necessarily I don't know if we necessarily had to develop stories such as, you know, the ozone hole, um, pollution, you know, overfishing, you know, these sort, you know, clean water, those sorts of things. And, and so I, I think it would be good to have some additional examples of what a good science story would be, okay? So I, I agree, you know, with this, but can you give an example kind of looking back either, you know, within uh, developments in me- medicine you know, other areas of science that led to compelling stories? I'm going off the top of my head. The answer is, yeah, there, there, there are a number of them. I think of a, a, a one that comes to the top of my head. It's the trouble with having filled my head with what I wanted to say here. Um, what I'll do is 3 o'clock this afternoon, I'll say, oh, oh that's the ones we should have used. Um, compelling stories have to be science-based. Uh, We've been through certainly other certainly before. overfishing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say clean water. Okay. Uh, clean let's take era. let's take let's take water. Let's go uh, overfishing. Um, that one certainly on the west coast uh, has been a story where what it's come down to because overfishing has been built up as a very uh, pervasive problem that all of a sudden I know a number of people who apologize when they go to a grocery store if they don't buy a fish that's specifically labeled sustainable. So that is a story that came out not because the fishermen said it was being overfished, uh, but because biologists, marine biologists said, here's what happens 
Here's what overfishing means. It doesn't mean there aren't any fish. It doesn't mean you're not fish on the table, but it means that someday someone won't. Um, it's the same kind of a disaster story and said, here's what you do about it. You eat sustainable fish, and, and, and all of a sudden, enough people believe it, so the grocers started to believe it. Uh, certainly water quality, there are a couple of those negative. A story doesn't have to end positively to have, imp to have powerful influence. In fact, a disaster story, depending on how you structure it and what role, position you want to put the audience in, can, can be very powerful. Some of the, the water quality stories, the Cayuga River, a couple of those New York ones, mm -hmm. Love Canal, mm -hmm. some of those where, you know, where, the, where the water burns. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of those stories did wonders to propel fundraising for uh, environmental groups working on, on water quality across the country. But those are all examples where things are tangible and real. People can see the river on fire. People yeah. can see that you're not getting yeah. big fish. Um, well, yeah. well I, I don't know about the, the fish one. And there's, if you, you go back to the 1700s, and it was very routine to pull 8 and 12 foot um, bass and carp out of the East River in New York. Uh, the, the lobsters were so plentiful in the East River of New York back then, uh, and no one really minded that suddenly there, <laughs> there anything alive. Anything that's alive in the East River of New York, you wouldn't want to touch anyway. Um, and, and so until suddenly someone pulled some, some story element and said, this is, here's the story, because we, we can't see the fish. Um, th so that that really was an invisible one and what didn't make a difference until suddenly someone turned it into a story. I will say that more, more, I think more powerful than it's not visible is the time scale problem. I completely agree with and that. And that is a bigger, that's a bigger issue because every, every human being has a discount rate and you discount the future when you're making present decisions. And so that it is setting up that future vision, be it, I have a picture that I have, it's, I, have a, you know, I have a picture frame on my wall. It's a picture of my great-grandchild. I may be dead before that child is there, but I'm going to tell my, my progeny that I want from, from my grave to be able to look back and see that picture of a smiling great-grand, something that creates a vision mm -hmm. that's very compelling, that's very real, that future vision has to be real, the goal, um, to, to, to then spur us to transfer something that is yeah. hypothetical and theoretical and abstract and make it personal. Yeah. But that's what the story like has to, to do. I guess I examples, you know, I'm, of, of... 350 has... And the, the that's, a, that's a story that's being told differently in, in individual community voice, but it's also being told in a compelling way with an ally group. So there are stories that represent what that means, and that is an effective story of what would happen if that was your family. That becomes personal to me. Right. How would then I transform? That's a small island of like 100 people. What happens if the eastern shore changes? That's a big idea that's terrifying, but there are steps we can take to prevent it. So that's a very compelling story. Um, the, the reservoir is a very compelling story. The tar yeah. is a very compelling story. Yeah. Um, well, that hand-wanted person back here, although it makes you walk farther. And by the way, for those of you who have other, it's now exactly 220, or I've got 221. Um, and, but no one's coming into this room, so we can stick around as long as anyone wants to, but those that have to run, thank you for coming. And um, you know, go out and make those stories. That's, that, that's what we need. We need people with platforms who can get stories out into the world to be creating effective stories. Yes, ma'am. Barbara Kingsolver wrote a book mm. uh, mm -hmm. about the monarch butterflies. Yeah. You know that book. And uh, it was the monarch, the change in the migra migratory patterns of the monarchs. And their, she, the protagonist, who was a simple woman in Tennessee, found them in a valley. 
Yep. And they're usually in Honduras in a valley, and that actually has happened. They're, they've started coming yeah, north. Yeah. Um, I thought it was, I, I've, I've been going through using your, your outline mm -hmm. to help me understand the book, because I actually did it in a book group in Washington, D.C. Oh, and, and I thought it beautifully paralleled what happened to in a woman's life. She had changes, she had struggles with the backdrop of, of the environment, and yet the group that of professional women that I did it with didn't get it. It's very hard to get at after this l'après moi, les, les déluges, this after, my, after me, the, uh, the flood, you know. So what can I do, um, even mm -hmm. with educated people? Um, but I thought that story, I thought that novel, and I'd love to hear what you think about it, uh, I thought the novel came very close to what you're saying. Well, I'm partial to her as a writer. Um, I love the way she writes. So it's fun, it, it's fun for me just to, to, um, to read it. But yeah, it's, uh, yes, I, yes, I like that book. It's, and and it's, it's wonderful. The story isn't about the butterflies. It's about the, the character, human character, that we are driven, compelled to, to be interested in. And as soon as we have that context, then the, the information that's woven into the story is relevant. And it's amazing how much easier it is to remember it and to internalize it and to treat it as if it were yours. That's what stories are designed to do. And yes, uh, I like her very much as a writer, and that's a good one. That, 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 um, do, are we still recording? Or are we? Then do we have? Oh, we have the mic. Go ahead. I think another great source of stories is TED Talks. You can go to Google, and they have. I'm not, well, mm -hmm. you can look, and they will archive TED Talks based on the environment. On the environment. So you can find TED Talks on just the ocean, TED Talks just on insects, etc. So I think that's a great source, and the people who are telling them are very emotionally moving. Um, yes, and I've, I've, I've seen some, but I haven't seen that many of the, the, the TED Talk ones. And it's true that, that you know, that format, you've you got you to be fast in a TED Talk. You've got to make your points and, and, and move on. Um, and so what would be great would be to have a way to put a TED Talk online so you could, you could link from moments in the TED Talk to an expanded version of what in the world that one sentence really means when you, when you get into it. But, which is something someone ought to suggest that TED does. Um, but yeah, uh, th you're right. There are a number of very good ones that are inspiring and, and very compelling. Very compelling. Uh, but we definitely need more. We need, we need more. And we need them to come from the kind of groups, need them to come from some of the science agencies with the, that have the platform to reach into the media. The, and TED really doesn't, although it's, it's there online. You can, you can, you can see it. Um, we, we've got to counter this incredible gloom and doom story that you know, Hollywood loves because it's a disaster movie. And so the media have adopted this love of the disaster movie. Right, because uh, having, been, having been one, you're taught to lead with two things. First, uh, all your caveats and, and assumptions to, to protect yourself so you can't be called, called a liar. Uh, and then with an extensive literature review to prove that you really know what you're talking about. So most people who aren't thoroughly versed in that specific field are so turned off by that point they never go on any further. I did some work with NASA at Goddard Space Flight Center and their Earth Observatory, which is an online series of articles that now has hundreds of, of articles in it. And they were able to do work in the metrics because, you know, the government loves metrics. And so they were tracking not only how many times people hit a story, but they track people through a story and see how many dropped off after page one and page two and page three. And they found that before people got to the conclusions, the real information, on average, 90%, 95% of the people had dropped off. 
and most of them dropped off after page one. And there's no information on page one of those stories. So I was trying to get with them to reform the, the, the way they work those stories. Um, but it, it, it's true that the scientists need, the, they need to, it's not essential to put all the caveats and the exclusions and the, and the exceptions up front. And st you can still have them there. And you can start with what does it mean to you and then go into the story. Yes, ma'am. Do you have this outline on your website? No, I don't. Uh, but if we do this, 